0: doesn't take, this is not a, this is not one of those passages that's hard to understand. It's one of those passages that is sobering in its application, and you walk away thinking, wow, okay, I need to, I need to not forget this one here this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about the love of God and about the holiness of God. I'm going to start with the love of God before we get to our passage. Maria and I had a wonderful time this week. We had the chance to go to a Zach Williams concert. If you've never listened to Zach Williams' music, it is wonderful music. And he's even better in concert. It was a great concert. He stopped midway through to give his testimony and it was just a wonderful testimony of the love and the grace of God. I'm going to give it to you in a short, short bit here. So he was raised in a Christian home, first generation Christian home. His parents came out of drug and party culture and came to salvation and they committed to raise their children in the church to give them every opportunity to be under the preaching and the teaching of God's word that they might come to salvation. And when Zach reached later high school, he himself entered into drug culture. Al- alcohol was, just went off the rails. And once he entered into college age, uh, was injured and ended up learning how to play the guitar and figured out he can play the guitar very well and loved it. And so recorded his first album and went on to uh, start this country rock band that signed a number of albums and started touring all over Europe. In his 20s and into his early 30s was a complete and total disaster, a time of utter rebellion. And he talks, about, he talks about in his testimony, his parents never stopping to pursue his soul. It's an, a powerful thing. I know many of us have prodigal children, and it's a powerful testimony of never, never giving up on your prodigal children. When he played the clubs and the bars, they would sit in the back, not to hear him, but to pray for him. And he said when he was so drunk that he couldn't go home, they would take him and put him in the car and drive him home and pray for him and tell him that they loved him. That's powerful stuff. So when he got to age 33, um, his wife and children said, we can't do this anymore. We're not going to watch you kill yourself. We're not going to just, we can't do this anymore. So when you come back from this next tour, we're not going to be here. And um, his, he said to his wife, God's going to have to prove to me that he's real. Or I'm, I'm, I, I've heard enough of this, I'm not interested in this. And so when he was touring through Spain on a, on a bus driven by a Spanish man, he took off his headphones and they song, if many of you have heard, called the Redemption, uh, let's see. Redeemed by Big Daddy Weave. It's a great song. If you've never heard it, go listen to it. Wonderful song. It's playing in English on this bus in the middle of Spain. And he said the Lord just used it to crush his heart because it's a song about being redeemed from all your sins and brought to the Lord. He got off the tour bus, canceled the the rest of the the, the tour, flew home, quit the band, and cleared out his closet, got down on his face in his closet and gave his heart to the Lord Jesus and confessed his sins and came to salvation. Now it's a process of, for all of us of sanctification and what it means to become a new person, but that was the time of his salvation. And it is a glorious, powerful story of the Lord pursuing a person and the long-suffering nature of God towards sin. The, oh, well over a decade of just outright full throttle rebellion against God. And yet the Lord had not given up on him and his parents had not given up on him. And the Lord brings him back to himself and now is using this man in a powerful way as a voice for this generation in Christian music and an evangelist. So the, the verse here, a hinge verse for us this morning, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Lord Jesus The motivation of sending Jesus the son is the love of God for the world. But why did he send his son? Why does the Lord not just forgive all the world? This is important. This is is central. It is the, the crux of all the gospel. He sends his son to be the savior of the world because the Lord God is both full of love, perfectly full of love, but he is also perfectly just and perfectly holy. When we look at Islam, Islam presents a God that just arbitrarily forgives sins. I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, maybe. But we know in our hearts that there must be justice and forgiveness. Because when someone we know deserves justice, but instead they are forgiven, it grates against our soul because we are created in the image of God. And we know that it is right to forgive people, but justice must be met out. And so we see in Christ Jesus, the justice of God and the love of God coming together. The love of God to see us forgiven is met by the justice of God and Christ being crucified upon the cross. He has come to meet the conditions of the holiness of God the Father, that in love he might pour out his grace and kindness. Jesus fulfilled the law, all the law. And he dies as our substitute. He is the one who lived the life that we never could, meets the demands of the holiness and the justice of God, and is our substitution that we might be forgiven. And so always throughout the scriptures, the wages of sin have been death. And this is something that's very foreign to our culture, but it is writ large in the scriptures. It begins with Adam and Eve in the garden where the Lord says, you shall not partake of this tree. Like everything else is in bounds. Have at it. But this is out of bounds. It's a statement of authority and it's a statement of God ruling. And that one thing, if you enter into this, if you rebel against me, you shall surely die. And they do. It is uh, weighted. It's put off, if you will, for many, many years. But they die, whereas they wouldn't have died before. In Romans chapter 6, 23, it's made very clear in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we have the grace of God, but the wages of sin or the penalty of rebellion against God has always been and will always be death. All of us are sinners. Every single one of us in this room are a sinner. And so we are living under a penalty of death. But God, in His long-suffering and in His mercy, desires people to be saved. And so instead of just doing away with all of the world, He is working to bring people to Himself in salvation. But occasionally, in the Scriptures, the Lord will bring about this sentence of death quickly in order for it to be an example to those that are watching. It is a swift judgment of death. To get the attention of those that are around, to remind people of the holiness of God, and it is not by mistake that it is recorded in the scriptures that we also might be warned. It is not unjust for the Lord to bring a swift death to a sinner. It is just what they deserve, but it is brought about in a time where they did not expect it. There's many occasions of this in the scripture. I'm going to point out two before we get to what I'm preaching about this morning in Acts chapter 5. The first example of this in uh, Numbers 16, first major example of this is um, Korah's rebellion. There's a man named Korah who rises up against Moses and decides he's going to overthrow Moses and his authority, and that doesn't work out real well at all because Moses is God's anointed leader over the people, but this guy is certain that Moses is the wrong guy, and he's going to raise up, he starts a rebellion amongst the people to unseat Moses. And the Lord executes this man and those who follow with him. When we go a little bit later, a powerful example of this in 2 Samuel chapter 6 in the, the kingdom where David is ruling it is with a man named Uzzah. They're moving the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Abinadab to Jerusalem. And David is in charge of this. this. is the Ark of the Covenant from the holiest of holy places in the tabernacle being moved. It's not a box of cucumbers to put on an ox cart. It has very specific ways in which God said, this is how the Ark of the Covenant that is the, the semblance of my presence amongst the people will be moved. And for whatever reason we're not given, David puts it on an ox cart. And there's two, one man in front named Ahio and Uzzah is behind and as this is going down the road, the ox stumbles, and Uzzah feels like for, that, the, that the ark is going to somehow fall off this cart, and he reaches up to, to stabilize it, and as soon as he touches the ark of the covenant, which is the symbolic presence of the Lord amongst the people, he dies and drops dead, and the whole thing stops, and David is angry, and there is a stark reminder that I am a holy God, and you will not just reach up And touch me and this is not how this works it is there's much that could be said there but why i'm mentioning all of these things is because it relates directly to what we're going to look at here in acts chapter 5. there are some people that think that all these things are for the old testament god was only holy or, or angry towards sin in the old testament that is not the case the nature of humanity has never changed And the nature of God has never changed. There is a progression to Revelation. There's a progression to the work of the Lord in the world. But the nature of God and the nature of human beings has not changed. God is still perfectly full of love as he was in the Old Testament. But he is also still perfectly holy and perfectly just. And so this morning we have an example of the Lord choosing to put two people to death for their sin in a way that is similar to what he did with Korah and what he did with Uzzah. So let's turn to Acts chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Please stand with me to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. This is a very, uh, this is an interesting passage in that the scriptures are super clear in these first five verses to parse out exactly what is and what is not happening here. And this is in contrast to the repeated examples that we've seen before this, in weeks of preaching before this, of the people freely and abundantly selling possessions to meet the needs of others in the church. So we have to review some of what is exactly happening here. So in review... As has been seen in some previous sermons, the people that were selling their things, they owned their property. Personal property ownership is a significant part of Scripture. That's why thievery is a real thing. You own what you possess, and you can dispose of it as you choose. And Peter's really clear here. You don't have, you didn't have to sell this land. I I am not compelling you to do this. No one has told you to do this, but others have been doing it. Others have been selling their things, giving it for the sake of meeting needs in the church. And for whatever reason, they felt like they wanted to come along and be a part of this. But they could have done what they pleased with the property that they had. They are not compelled to do this. But what comes out of these early verses is it is very clear that they colluded together to lie, that they sold this piece of property for whatever amount of money they did, and they decided, we're going to keep this portion of it, but we're going to say that we're giving all of it. So why would you do that? Because you want to look, it's like the person that gets the big checkout, the big, oh, you gave $5,000 and here's, I want everybody here. Everybody see, I gave $5,000. Something like that is happening here. If they had just said, well, we sold it for $10,000, but we can give 7,000 and or whatever it, whatever it may be. And they brought that there and said, here's, we sold this and this is what we'd like to give to the church. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But that's not what's happening here. There's a deception going on where they say, did you sell it for this? Yes, absolutely. And there's something where they're trying to exalt themselves and look good before the church as if they are more godly than they are. We just talked about last week Barnabas and his great example, true-hearted, earnest example. And what we have here is an example of two people working to deceive the church and ultimately to deceive the Lord. And it's very clear from the passage that they planned this out. They colluded together. It says as Sapphira knew what the price of the land was and that they had colluded together to do this as a, like, let's get our story straight so we can lie this thing through and then look really great and celebrate it. That's terrible, folks. I mean, it's, this is a serious problem and obviously we're going to see how serious it really is. In verse 4, the last part, it's one of these important verses in the scripture. You have not lied to man, but to God. When I read that, that, that sentence there, it takes me back to Joseph and how Joseph, when he was tempted to sin with Potiphar's wife, he flees the house, and he says, I cannot do this great wickedness against the Lord. It's, it's, yes, it would be against Potiphar to, to have adultery with his wife, but the, the sin is ultimately against the Lord. When we sin, we are sinning against the Lord because we are violating His holiness. It's His standard of holiness that we are breaching. And we must understand that when we're doing something like this, it's not just against our neighbor or against our spouse or against our coworker. It is against the Lord. You have not lied to man, but to God. So Ananias and Sapphira, we're not given, uh, you know, everything going on in their heart, but they are at a minimum trying to deceive God. But it seems to me that they just, they don't believe in God. They, they, are, they are executed by the Lord as, as the ungodly people that they are. I don't know how it is that you could work to collude together in a situation like this, especially during a radically powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the church where you just don't get it. You don't understand what is going on here. And you're trying to come into this place as a person that is going to manipulate the church and manipulate what is happening there for your own benefit. But three hours after Ananias is struck down, his wife comes in, hasn't gotten the message, sticks with the same lie. She is given an out. Peter asks her, tell me, did you or did you not sell the land for this, this amount? This, this reminds me so much of what happens with our children. You already, you know everything that's going on. All right, son, daughter, I need to know, did this or did this not happen? oh yes, oh yes, it happened just like that. And and how many times have you thought this in your own heart? Why would you do this? Why would you tell me this? I, I know you are lying to me. This is not good. And now we've gone from dealing with this situation to dealing with your heart as a liar. And that's where we're going with this. But the Lord brings her to death as well. And obviously there is great fear that comes over the church. So let's answer some some questions as to why would God do this? I don't know, the Lord's prerogative to do such things is his prerogative. But as I've established earlier, he has the right to do this. The wages of sin is death. And every time that we make overt acts of rebellion against the Lord, it is within his right as a just and holy God to end our lives. But why would God do this at this time? If you look at this from a church growth model, oh man, the church is exploding. You know, money's coming in, people are being saved. Why in the world would the Lord bring someone to death over judgment of sin in the midst of all this and think, well, this is just going to put the brakes on everything. That's not the case because what it is, is a powerful reminder, a correcting reminder That God is full of love, but he is also full of holiness. He is both of these things together at the same time. And we have to, it's really not a balance. We must keep both of these things in our mind as we go forward. He is reminding them of his holiness in a very, very clear way. I think number one, it is a powerful reminder to them and to us of God's holiness and authority to judge sin. It is a warning. And similar to how we do this with our with our children, it is a warning to them. We warn our children sometimes, like, if you do this, this is going to be the consequence of these things. You may or you may not listen to me, but I'm telling you, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. And the Lord is warning his people to hold them back from sin, that lying lips are something that will not be tolerated by the Lord. Second is that the church is not a game or a social organization or a fad. In some way, Ananias and Sapphira had to see this early church popularity, this wave of excitement, that somehow this is a fad or something I just really want to be involved with. We're not told why they so much wanted to be a part of this, but something carried them into this, and then they thought they could manipulate it for their own purposes, and they couldn't. And we, in this day and age, I know for a fact, have that temptation. There are aspects of certain churches that are popular fads, and people think they can come into them and somehow manipulate God and his church to be a part of what's happening now. And that is not, it's impossible. You cannot manipulate God. It is not authentic godliness, but wanting to achieve standing within the church through your own means. And I want to be clear because this relates to money. God does not want your money He wants the affections of your soul. He wants you to love him from the heart. He is pursuing your soul. And you will then contribute things to the work of the Lord when you realize that life is not about things and it's not about money, but you have the opportunity to use what you have for the glory of God. But it does not start related to money in any way, shape, or form. God wants the affections of your soul to earnestly love him from the heart. And if these two people did, they would never have done this. And the third basic moral lesson from this, which is just a great reminder in general, is that God hates lying lips. Okay? He just does. This is very straightforward, and I think we always need a reminder of this because all of us are tempted in this way. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are His delight. It's a powerful word. When we go to all the way to the very, very end of the Bible, in the last chapter, in the last half of the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verses 14 through 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. By the way, I had a very sweet um, young girl come up to me one time after I read this passage and say, Does that mean that dogs will never enter into heaven? I don't, that's not the purpose of this. So I, I'm not saying that there will not be any dogs anywhere in heaven. It, it speaks to people that are. Uh, rebellious and and of a mongrel nature. They're, They're outside of the walls of the city of God. And part of those are those who practice falsehood, liars. Why is this so important? Because if we look at the adversary of Jesus, the adversary of the Lord our God, Satan, he is described as a deceiver and as the father of lies. That's the nature, that's the the founding ground of his nature is that he is a liar and a deceiver. We as the people of God cannot be liars and deceivers. We must be people of truth. No matter how hard it is to tell the truth, no matter what consequences may come with it, we have to tell the truth. And it can't be overstated. If we are people that are deceivers and we are deceiving one another and we're deceiving our family and we're deceiving our children and our workplace, we cannot name the name of Christ and live as deceivers. And so this touches and tempts every one of us every day because it looks like a shortcut. It looks like a way to get to what we want and the way that we want it. But the Lord is calling us to be those who speak and tell the truth always. And so we must be so, for Jesus is a truth teller. He is the truth. He always speaks the truth. And in him, there is no deception. There is no portion of error in what he is speaking. And so as we follow Christ, we must be committed to not being liars, not being deceivers, not being gossipers, not being untrustworthy. Verse 11, final verse here, is that great fear came upon the whole church. And surely it would. The authority of God is being displayed in a way that he he calls it. He says, call me father. I am God, your father. Now with that analogy comes love and comes authority. And every good father is one that is full of love, but also displays and lives out proper authority. And with God the father, he is the perfect father and his authority is perfect and it is perfect in holiness And we must be reminded this morning by reading this passage that God will judge your sin. He will judge my sin and he will judge your sin. That the church is not a game and that God cannot be deceived. You may have everybody in your life fooled, but you do not have God fooled. You cannot deceive God. Don't try. The only way out of this situation is the mercy of Christ Jesus. When you come and you confess your sins to Jesus, you will find that he is full of grace and full of mercy and will forgive your sins. But you must bend the knee and confess your sins and turn your heart over to him. Going back to the early testimony of Zach Williams, you've got to come to the end of yourself and you've got to get down on your knees in a low place and ask God to forgive you, and he will. And you will realize that he is the Savior. May we all... Trust the Lord today and be, be warned by his holiness that we might walk in his grace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this passage. It's a sobering passage, a warning passage. But Lord, when we put it together with the beautiful passages we've read before this and what we know to be true in our hearts of your salvation, it's something that straightens our, our back a little bit and reminds us, Lord, we've got to be careful. We cannot uh, wade over into lying and deceiving. No matter how tempting it may be, Lord, we must not go that route. We must not go the route of Satan, the adversary, the deceiver. Lord, we must be those who stand with Christ and walk in truth. Help us all in this. And Lord, I pray that if there is any here this morning that is living in deception, that think they've got everybody deceived, nobody knows what's really going on, I pray that they would just be shaken to the core in realizing that you know every detail of their life. You know all the rebellion of their life. And I pray that that great shaking would not lead them to despair, but would lead them to repentance. And that in repentance, they would find life through the mercy of Jesus our Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.